0: Welcome, this is Davros, and you are listening to Nerd Culture Podcast, and if you are not, you will be exterminated.
1: thirty-seven of the Nerd Culture Podcast. Thirty-seven. That's your name, dude. <laughs> <laughs> was that a Clerks reference? Yes, yes it was. I, I just
0: got that. You counted with a Lebowski reference. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
2: I'm not sure that that's really how it works. Can, can you actually do that? Oh, Christ, we cross. I suppose you could count genres. Cross- I suppose at the end of the day, you're successful. Any time you counter with a
0: big Lebowski chorus. You, you span the genres. That's
2: right. Any, any
0: create... time is a
1: good time for a Lebowski. We should cover, cler- cover Clerks at one point, because that's a brilliant scene.
0: That means I'd have to watch it.
3: Yeah, on a family-rated show, maybe not. <laughs> we'll, we'll figure out a way. <laughs> I just have that dude that just suddenly just starts following her. It's like, hey, you! <laughs> uh,
1: anyway, sorry about that it's ridiculously long intro. Uh, my name is David, and with me are the NCP crew. Richo!
2: I can't own... Earn- the Star Wars franchise anymore? No! My
3: childhood dream is ruined. Seven billion. Uh, Luke, I can still own the Star Wars franchise. It's just going to take a lot longer than I had now anticipated. <laughs> in your fan fiction world, you can still own it. <laughs> hey, hey, anything's possible in my fan fiction world. That's true. And Crystal. Do not want.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nerd Culture Podcast is a fortnightly Australian podcast that focuses on nerd culture-related film, book, and comic reviews, with a healthy dose of opinion thrown in for good measure. Not only do we have the podcast, but we also have our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com which features additional content not found on the podcast itself, including my opinion of uh, Disney's recent takeover of Lucasfilm. Is it positive?
3: (laughs) Are you all for it?
1: I am all for it. Fill your cart with glee. I wouldn't go so far as to say glee, but... I'm cool with it. So, okay. for those for those of you who don't know, and if you listen to this podcast, surely you know by now, uh, Disney has acquired the rights to the Lucasfilm company. So it includes Skywalker Sound and ILM. Um, ILM. It doesn't include the original films or the original Indiana Jones films or anything like that. It only, only includes basically the IP. Um, and with, with that takeover, they've also announced a new film in 2015, which continues. The saga, so Episode 7 is on its way. Um,
0: and I'm Harrison's actually, down for it. Yeah, yeah I, that, that's Harrison
1: the, might be down for it. That so. is
0: the weirdest
2: news to come out of all of this.
1: I think it's it for, was, for it was guy quite who, shocking.
2: For a guy who wanted Han Solo dead <laughs> at the end of Empire Strikes Back because he thought the character was terrible, yeah. it's amazing how much he's had a change of heart. In well, he must or either
1: has to, he has to pay the bills or they've said, hey, we'll kill Han Solo off which is... Uh, yeah, um, well, that's oh, one of the case. One of the main
3: characters has to die in the new... In the new oh, movie. yeah, for sure. Well, maybe he's just
0: capable of changing his mind. Well, it, maybe... Maybe um, Joss Whedon's going to direct and kill off Han Solo. No, the
3: yeah.
2: names that have been going around at the yeah. moment are uh, Steven Spielberg. Yeah, he's already said no. Uh, Brad Bird.
1: Yeah, Brad Bird's in, still in conjunction. Michael Payne. And, um, Michael Payne. <laughs> oh, dear God, no.
2: Um, and... J. J. Abrams, and I really yeah. hope they don't go there. He's already said no as well. So. Oh, Star, Wars. Yeah. Star Wars, Star Wars, and the lens flare. Uh, and so, <laughs> and
1: so um, thankfully, has
3: Zack Snyder.
2: Ah, oh, good. So, I, I, I we, don't think I could put up with Star Wars and slow that's
3: motion. What, what we need is one lightsaber fight that goes for two hours. Well, it's,
1: it's, <laughs> you mean
2: Revenge of the Sith?
1: <laughs> Interestingly enough, um, what the the one of the directors that Lucas Lucas was uh, put his hand up for was. Um, the guy who directed uh, *Safety see, Not Guaranteed*, <clears throat> Colin Trevero, I think, is, yeah, who is which is interesting. Yeah, so it's it's an it's a, it's interesting news, and I for one am happy. Uh, I think uh, Lucas has uh, proven that he's just tired of the whole uh, Star Wars universe, and it's it'll be good to see a new, fresh pair of eyes. Even if either,
2: those fresh pair of eyes are Michael Bay. Well, we've already known Michael Bay's not going to be involved, <laughs> so it's all good. Um, or um,
1: Renny Harlan, or U. <laughs> Bowl or I, w- I want to be positive. All the great people
3: that could. Direct I want to be Star positive Wars. about it.
1: I'm actually, I'm actually glad that this is happening. So we'll we'll um, see. We'll, we'll yeah, see. Look, I mean, we've we got a new Star Wars film. How can that be at, bad?
2: At the end of the day, be very I'm always oh. excited about cool Star Wars stuff. So yeah. <laughs> a new, the prospect of a new film, awesome. We'll be reviewing it. We will
1: be reviewing it, and if it's anywhere near as good as the current Clone Wars series, mm. uh, which is Kick and goals. Oh yeah, and, uh, season uh,
3: four has some.
1: Season four is magnificent stuff. Yeah, so we're, I'm I'm all for it.
2: I'm still watching season one. Season one's good, but season four is awesome. Yep. They went to the Greedo Planet. That was cool. <laughs> anyway, enough
1: Star Wars. Let's move on. Uh, for this episode, we have a special dust jacket focusing on short stories. A sort of a brief history of short stories. And our favourite short stories. So our, our favourite examples of the that literary format. I won't bother going into uh, what is a short story because I'm not going to insult our audience.
2: A short story is a story. That's short.
1: <laughs> it is not long. <laughs> oh,
2: gee. Uh oh. Although some of them were pretty long.
3: Has your intelligence been insulted yet, audience?
2: (laughs) They're listening to our show. Their intelligence has already been insulted. I know.
1: Their IQs have dropped just listening to us. (laughs) I really hope that's not the case. (laughs) We love you, audience. And then we'll have a roundtable on my favourite television series of all time. The Twilight Zone. Of all
3: time. I don't think you said that right You needed to, sound, you needed to sort of drop your voice down a few octaves And sound like you've got this cleft in your <laughs> upper lip And really talk like you're gritting through your teeth and see. The, My favourite show of all time is the Twilight Zone Something like
0: that That's how it's done That was, that was awesome time. That was absolutely awesome <laughs> That was done
1: First up, Dust Jacket Dust um. Jacket So like I said in the intro, I'm not going to bother describing what exactly is a short story, except to say that uh, it is shorter than a novel, <laughs> shorter than a novella, uh, but longer than flash fiction.
3: Can I just add one thing? The term short does tend to get um, thrown out thrown with some weight and abandon. Some to- some stories can be very short, some, yeah. some sort of stories can be short because the author has decided that, that that should be a short story, even though they are running to about 50
1: pages. Really? I thought that the actual, the official definition was no more than twenty thousand words. Something along those lines, yeah. Yeah, isn't that the Hugo definition? Something like that, yeah. So you, to be, uh, be eligible for a Hugo Award for a short story, yeah, it's got to, to be 20, 000,
2: yeah. I just want to point out that you have actually now told us what a short story is. <laughs> <Yeah>, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. I just, but I thought it was
1: important to ha- have that little extra, extra bit there. Um, so a short, so, so the characteristics of a short story are, are pretty similar th- uh, throughout history, really. So it's, it's. A story that, uh, as uh, Poe famously described, was a, a story that you can you can read in one sitting, um, or what his definition of a sitting in his days a bit
2: different to yeah. our definition. But uh, uh, could you imagine him sitting like he'd have like a smoking <laughs> jacket and a fireplace? I didn't and... mean the environment; I
1: meant the amount of time. And they had more time to sit and read, whereas we have you know we're constantly on the go.
2: Yeah, because yeah, we've okay, got television now. <laughs> that's like the idea of Edgar Allan Poe sitting by a fireplace reading his own story With a raven. Of... <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll get back to Poe later because he's a genius. Um, but uh, So basically the general idea is that uh, it focuses on a, a, a singular event or a singular environment. Um, it doesn't really span a lot of time uh, and has uh, you know, a sort of, not necessarily always a twist ending, but you know some sort of point is made at the end.
3: Or moral of some description. or some sort of
1: fable, moral Mm -hmm. sort of thing. So that's generally what a short story is, and I don't know why I just went all through that. I don't know why I said I wasn't going to do it when I just went ahead and did it, but I thought it was important. Um, Short stories have been around for many, many, many moons. Uh, They started off, sort of the idea of a short story should have started off um, back with uh, the Roman uh, epitaphs and Aesop's fables and stuff like that. Um, and sort of and then go throughout history sort of Geoffrey uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is basically a collection of short stories um, in, and it sort of goes on through there uh, I'm not going to bore you, my beautiful audience by going through the complete history of short stories and then, so then of course you get through to sort of uh, 17th century uh, uh, the uh, translation of the 1001 knights you know, the Arabian Nights, which was a huge influence on the rise of its day mm-hmm. um, And then, of course, you get into sort of like the 1800s. Um, We get sort of what we could have sort of considered modern short stories, so the short story format sort of uh, became what we sort of know it is uh, as it is today and continued on.
3: That's probably when it started to... um, When writers started to write specifically to be paid. That's exactly right. you You were being paid, you know... Like a, a penny a word, or a pence a word, yeah. or sixpence a word, or, or what have you, send it into a magazine, and they would specifically pay you to publish it.
1: Yep, that's exactly right. That's uh, it, this is when this is the period when short stories essentially became huge, mm. and that you actually had authors who were only short story writers. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's that was just that was their theme. Yeah, um, and I mean, I've, I've, uh, it's quite common nowadays for uh, established authors to do some short stories to sort of. You know, sort of. The, as, as, uh, Stephen King says that he he, do, he writes them to sort of clear his mind, mm. so he can then get on to the his huge, huge epics. Right. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that during this period is is when people were, you know, like like you said, you know, writing them for mm. uh, publication and and to to pay the bills. So this is this is a, obviously a very important time for short stories. It's, it's, this is this uh, is the period of Edgar Allan Poe, who's one of my heroes. So while we're in this period, let's talk about one of my favourite short stories, The Telltale Heart. I chose the story because uh, I was getting a headache trying to decide out of all the, the thousands of short stories that I like, which ones to go with, and uh, I thought it would be a travesty if Poe wasn't represented. Poe's most famous work would probably be uh, The Raven, based in part to the brilliant Simpsons episode. Um, but uh, in terms of his short story output, uh, this is... One of my favorites. Um, I mainly chose it because of its ending, uh, which by today's standards is is old hat. But you have to remember that this is you know 1843 when this came out, and at this point it was you know brand new and shocking, and you know people actually fainted upon reading this, which is just brilliant to sort of <laughs> picture that. Um, so I mean, it's only old hat now because some people have ripped it off. Um, it basically tells the story of uh, a, an unnamed uh, narrator who. Uh, ha- he's living with this elder- elderly man um, who has this who has like these sort of milky cataract eyes and they, say, they basically creep him out and uh, he's basically he's, this guy's so creeped out that he decides to eventually do this old guy in for no good reason because <laughs> he's just a bit of a madman so he he does this guy he does the, uh, the old man in and um, buries him under the floorboards and because he's a psycho He's, he's able to. It's just one of the first portrayals of um, of a psycho who's able to operate within society and not be sort of seen for the raving lunatic that he is. Instead of, you know, frothing at the mouth and, and sort of the wild googly eyes and sort of that sort of thing you sort of pictured that mad men were pictured as being in that point, he's actually a perfectly normal person. And uh, it basically ends with him having an interview. Uh, he's basically gotten so cocky at this point uh, that he's basically having co- a conversation with. Um, a police officer in the same the same room where he 's buried the body over the over the the body itself with, with that is underneath the floorboards, but by this point he 's gone so mad that he actually now he n- now believes that he can hear the heart the still beating heart of the of the corpse underneath the floorboards it 's never actually explained what the sound is that he 's hearing it 's probably just his it 's just his insanity i suppose but um, you can, you he and it drives him so mad that he that he 's the only he the only one who can hear it because nobody else can. That he eventually reveals that he is in fact a murderer and that the body is there and you know gets done in. So it's genius. Um, my retelling of it is poor in comparison. Um, <laughs> it's I, I highly recommend that you read it uh, just in terms of the of Poe's use of language. Uh, I, but I can I consider him a genius not just because of the content of his stories, which which are all, uh, awesome in terms of my sort of the sort of things that I like, sort of the gothic horror sort of suspense mystery but just the way he writes is it's almost lyrical and uh, you can sort of see that not just in his stories but especially in his poems um so check him out he's brilliant
0: uh, what i really liked about the story and what creeped me out the most is the where he describes but, but watching the old man sleep mm. uh, how he carefully opens the door and he's watching him sleep every night um, I found that creepier than the actual murder. <laughs>
3: yeah, the looking at the evil. eye. Um, yeah. One of the things that I think is really strong about this story, there is a lot of build up, but the build up is still interesting to watch. Mm. Um, it doesn't feel like it's getting there. It feels like he's building and building and building until the absolute the moment where the truth is revealed. But at no point was they're thinking, right? I just I am just waiting to get to the end. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's the it's the suspense. He's, you know, he, he is effectively the literary equivalent of Hitchcock just good at keeping you on tent talks but at no point do you feel bored and you can
2: actually see speaking of Hitchcock the influence of this story on a film like Rope Mm. but I'm glad you mentioned Poe because really there is so much that we have to give Poe credit for when we're talking short stories his influence is just across the board phenomenal I mean he he gave us the first detective short story that was a huge influence on writers like Conan Doyle Mm. Um, I think you can see the influence of Poe on a writer like H.P. Lovecraft Yep. as far as the mood and atmosphere and the, the gothic horror. Um, r- really, I mean, this is where it all begins as far as modern short stories go. And
1: then, of course, you get into uh, the la- the later 19th century, where you get some of the the huge names of short stories, uh, like uh, Kipling, who, who released collections of short stories. Mm-hmm. Arthur Conan Doyle, of course.
3: Yeah, the yeah. master, the, uh, yeah, you should sort of mention yeah. him a little bit because he in in one, in the, uh, four novels and yeah. in sixty short stories, yeah, sixty fifty six, he introduced one of the most famous characters in the world. Exactly right, um,
2: and that that's a pretty telling figure too of just the the importance and popularity of short stories at that time. I mean, yeah. it was there the are, TV of its
0: time. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's, this, this is this where the giants of, of the genre sort of come into play: H. G. Wells, um, Herman Melville, Mark Twain. It's uh the Russian writers, uh Anton Chekhov. Also technological influence as well, you know, we had the he had
3: the printing press.
1: Yeah, so this well, is the period it... Where, where it became a lot cheaper to produce mm. them and uh and and mass uh mass produced them mm. this is where mass production came into effect yeah. and uh, it was just available for everybody. So that brings us to uh the early nineteen hundreds, uh where pulps came into play.
2: Yeah, you know, the the nineteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds uh saw the emergence of uh, the pulp magazines which were the natural successor to the trade journals and what we see with the emergence of the pulps as well is uh really the the huge emergence of science fiction short stories and science fiction as a genre uh coming sort of into the popular culture okay. look i won't talk about all of the pulps because we've actually done that before on previous episodes but um What I really want to focus on here is the absolute red-letter day for science fiction, and that's uh, in 1926, um, when Hugo Gernsback uh, gives us Amazing Stories. Uh, Now, Amazing Stories was basically the first English-language magazine to focus entirely on publishing science fiction stories.
3: Amazing Stories is important because it's the first stepping stone that solidifies this is not just, you know, fanciful H.G. Wells literature. But as a genre in and of itself. Okay, Amazing Stories is that first landmark in that direction, says we are different to everything else.
2: A lot of those science fiction stories were not necessarily what we recognize today. There wasn't necessarily that hard science approach. Um, a lot of it was more, I guess you'd call it science fantasy.
3: Science fantasy, adventure fiction set amongst the stars, effectively.
2: Yeah. Um, space opera. Space opera. In the late 30s, we see possibly the second most pivotal point in this era, which is uh, John W. Campbell takes over as editor of Astounding Stories. And, of course, Campbell's approach was that um, the stories that he was publishing should actually have a greater basis in mm. science.
3: Not only that, there's an interesting thing, I think, with what Campbell sort of does and he tries to suggest, which is that the future, the future doesn't become this thing that we might get to eventually if we survive whatever holocaust's come our way. We actually live. We will actually live there, but he determined that it shouldn't be this big, shiny, glossy thing. That it should be wonder. wonder it should be wonderful to us as a reader, but the characters within the future itself should treat it as if it's the everyday.
2: Um, and he brings in a new wave of writers called, and I just love this term called futurians. Right. This is reads like a who's who, basically of golden giants. age, hmm. golden age giants. Yeah, yeah. And mean you have James Blish, uh, Frederick Pohl, Robert Heinlein. Arthur C. Clarke, uh, you have A. E. Van Voigt, and you have Theodore Sturgeon. Which brings me to my first choice for short stories. Uh, it's a story by Sturgeon, published in 1941, called Microcosmic God. There's actually two reasons I chose uh, this story. First is I actually read it uh, in a just a weird anthology collection that I had as a child that I think I got at a Trash and Treasure market. Oh, cool. Um, Trash and Treasure. Which actually contained a lot of the writers that I just read out. Really? Um, That's awesome. So you actually found some treasure amongst the trash. I did, and I still have the the book to this day (laughs) sitting on my shelf. Uh, It's a little bit uh, worse for wear, but (laughs) it's still there. Um, But actually, the second reason I chose it is I think this story actually... um, is just a, the perfect representation of exactly the sort of things that we've talked about as far as uh, Campbell and what he was bringing in uh, to science fiction. So the story centres around um, Kiddo, who is a genius biologist and just a genius in general. Kidder's not exactly a, a creative genius. He's not one to come up with new ideas, but what he does is constantly seek out knowledge and... In seeking out knowledge from numerous sources, he's able to piece things together, and that's really where his creations come from. But what he finds is that he's struggling to find new knowledge, and that humanity is just not advancing fast enough for him. So he tries to sort of work out what he can do to rectify that, and he can't create a time machine, because of the laws of time, uh, time travel. And um, he, he can't just force humanity to evolve, so he decides to create his own life on his island, and to advance them much quicker through evolution so that he can watch, observe them um, and uh, present them with new challenges that will force their evolution further. And then he can note everything that's going on. He can learn from what they're doing um, and then therefore increase his knowledge base, Um, which is a little strange, but I like him as a character. I find that really fascinating, an, an idea that he's willing to go to that length to get the knowledge that he's, that he's seeking. Um, he has a um, arrangement with Conant, who is a bank manager, um, who basically talks to him regularly enough to get little snippets of information out of him. And then Conant then uses the information that's provided and the ideas and the, the inventions to further advance humanity, but also make a substantial amount of money. Kidder doesn't really care for Conant all that much, um, he's more concerned about these little people he's created who are called Neoterics. But Conant, unfortunately, um, also has a quest, but his quest is more for power. And when Kidder creates a new energy source based on a transmitter receiver type setup similar to radio, and then Kidder doesn't give Conant the actual transmitter, mm. Conant takes over the island and forces him in to do this. So, um, yeah, so you're seeing how. I suppose how power corrupts, especially in Conant. But even in Kidder, I mean, Kidder is basically playing God to these neoterics that he's created. And he's actually quite cruel at times. But anyway, so um, Conant takes over the island, forces Kidder to um, give him the prototype model for the uh, transmitter. Builds the transmitter on the island against Kidder's wishes. And then blackmails the American government (laughs) into effectively giving him power. So Conant then decides that um, he's basically going to blow up the island, but Kidda has his has his little creations actually created impenetrable field around the island that actually protects himself and one other person on the island who is a fellow scientist who had actually been working on the construction of the transmitter and so really, the story ends with uh Conant because the transmitter is on the island, the field prevents the transmitter from transmitting through to the receivers that Connacht has set up across America that will basically blow up and kill everybody. And so Connacht is arrested, and all ends well, except um, there's kind of a little epilogue where Sturgeon basically reveals through the narrator of the story that, look, eventually Kidder is going to die, but the Neoterics are still going to be there and that one day they will emerge, and who knows what will happen from that point. So kind of a slightly ominous ending um but you see that um present there is like i said a lot of what campbell was looking for you and yeah i just i just see this as well, first of all one of the i think one of the greatest science fiction stories ever written but also just a great illustration of the points we've been talking about
1: um that was uh, that was a an, an excellent pick i thought rich uh, i actually haven't i haven't read that story since mm. school and i'm an old man so that was a while ago mm-hmm. but, uh, it was it was good. It's. It. I, I just love uh, uh, Conic's plan, uh, sort of the power behind the throne, sort of deal. It's like yeah. I've, I've, like, I've, I've placed all these bombs. You know where where they are. They could go at any time. What? One particular scene that I really, really sticks in my mind is. It's like it's kind of it's like an. A, a, this, it's nothing that you would find out of place in an action movie today. Is it the White House in the White House room, the the Oval Office? You've got one of those bombs as an example. Yeah. And it's just sitting there, and there's people. There's people too afraid to move. And, to, and eventually, one of the Secret Service guys just like was just bugger this. I can't do it any longer, and like leaps at it to sort to sort of to, yeah. to turn it off. But by that point, the shield has been erected, and so the beam's not transmitted anymore. Yeah. And it is in fact dead already. And yeah. it's just like he, it, so it's already off, and it's just, oh,
0: and he just wipes <laughs> the
1: sweat from his brows.
2: <laughs> There's red wire, the brilliant. blue wire. <laughs> There is one other name that I haven't mentioned yet. Campbell also brought in basically the hero of everybody here I think at NCP, uh, Isaac Asimov was uh, one of his basically possibly his biggest writer. Mm. And really this is this is where Asimov developed his his style, his skill yep. as a writer. I mean this this yeah. early forties period was just a boom period for him. Mm. So he paid his dues. Absolutely.
1: So this is where he started this so this is his first his first replication as in this built magazine, is it? Absolutely, mm.
2: in Astounding Tales. Uh, which actually brings us to
0: uh, one of Crystal's choices, also published in 1941, uh, Nightfall. Yeah, how could we talk about short stories and not mention our old friend, Dr. Isaac? Hmm. So the reason I chose Nightfall is uh, very similar reasons to why Richo chose Microcosmic God. It's, it is it's a really good example of science fiction at, at its core, science uh, a story based on hard science uh i also say it's a really good example of speculative fiction he's thought about a planet that has a number of suns so they never actually have a night there's always at least one sun somewhere in the sky providing some form of light on this planet so he's wondering what would happen on this planet if there was a night. So once every, I think it's 2,000 years or so, there's a, a, a the sun's align, something eclipses one of the suns, and there's nightfall. Anyway, so basically where we're at in this point of time is uh, there's a group of scientists that are trying to warn people that this event's going to happen, but uh, people don't believe them, and there's religious zealots out there um, predicting the end of the world because uh, there's evidence that this has happened in the past and the, that the civilizations have fallen and so they believe that the end of the world is coming. And the story focuses on these scientists up in the observatory and, and a journalist that have, has come to talk to the scientists about it and find out what's going on. And uh, one of the scientists is trying to explain how darkness may actually affect people who have, in the history of the planet, have not seen darkness before. Some scientists speculate there are other suns out there and maybe other planets, but they have no idea of the grandness of the universe. And uh, so when nightfall comes and it's billions and billions and billions of stars in the sky, people kind of freak out and get a bit insane. So to get back to my original point, the the main reason I chose this story is just because it's such a wonderful example of uh, looking at science, understanding how it works and then uh, using it to Fueling your imagination.
2: So then, of course, we see um, obviously World War Two.
0: Um, but what
2: happens in uh, the post-World uh, War Two period is the emergence of an attempt, I suppose, to legitimise science fiction to move it out of the pulp magazines and into, um, I guess, more reputable quote-unquote journals.
3: Not not so much for science fiction, but the writers themselves were trying to, yeah, to move get out, out of that. the pulps. Yeah, um, Ray Bradbury is probably the most famous example of that.
2: Yeah. Another good example of this is actually, um, it brings me to my second choice um, for a short story. Um, it's a story called The Lottery by Shirley Jackson, published first in the New Yorker. So you're seeing, obviously, we're moving out of pulps and into uh, the slicks. Mm. Um,
1: it was actually the highest selling issue. To it was, yeah, point.
2: yeah. But my main reason, my main reason for choosing it though, is um, due actually to the controversy. Yeah, uh, that this story <laughs> uh, created. So just just to give you a very brief overview, it's a very short uh, story. The lottery. Um, it's set in a village. Uh, it's a very small town with a, only a very small uh, grouping of families. And the suggestion in the story is that this across America. This is the way that the country is set up in these small enclaves of, of small families and that each year a, a lottery is done amongst all of these families. Um, the first part of the lottery is to actually break it down as to to one family in particular and then the individual members of that family then participate in a second lottery um, and it's basically just scaled down, scaled down until there is basically one person is the winner. And, then and they- what do
1: they win, Bob?
2: That person is stoned to death.
1: <laughs> uh, so it's the complete opposite it's, of Powerball. Power
2: basically. Um, <laughs> poor Mrs Hutchinson. <laughs> poor Mrs Hutchinson gets stoned to death.
3: It's not um, fair, she's right. Yeah. Actually, I don't care, so. <laughs>
2: um, and that this is uh, the, the suggestion is that this is a way of, um, you know, that there are limited resources, this is a way of controlling population, that sort of thing.
3: This is, that's actually one of the more clever, as, clever aspects of the story. I don't think it's a great story, but the more clever aspect it is it doesn't actually state that resources are dwindling; it infers exactly. it, um, and Seth yeah. so mentions that you know there are lotteries going on on other towns as well, which says it suggests it's a widespread thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, um, and I do like that subtlety. Mm. It, it is probably the strongest point. Um, look, the, the story is not brilliant, um, and really reading it from a modern perspective, the twist ending is actually quite predictable. Right. Pretty much right from the start. <laughs> if you um, haven't
1: figured it out, the first page—you <laughs> haven't been reading
2: short stories. <laughs> um, I mean, this story was published in, oh, yeah. as we said, the the New Yorker. You're in post-war America, yeah. where patriotism is at its all-time high. Point. <laughs> yeah. um, that sense of uh, victorious euphoria and. Um, you know, being able to overcome all of the challenges that the future will present is part of the zeitgeist.
3: Yeah. Plus, also, you know, they've just come through a period where they've had to live through dwindling resources as exactly, well. Exactly. Yeah. So, this that would have struck that element would have struck yeah. a chord with, I'm assuming, with um, readers of okay. 1948. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. But I think the, the probably the most important thing here is that the story was published in the New Yorker, so it was out of the pulps, and it was it was then um, syndicated. Across America to other newspapers and other journals, and so it was very widespread. And you you actually see what we were talking about that that suddenly there was a, a legitimacy to science fiction and speculative fiction. But uh, yeah, the backlash to that was that of course that um, the story was banned. There were threats against shirley jackson um it was deemed un-american yeah. Um, yeah it's it's amazing like
3: like it was always deemed communist
2: absolutely you know, it, it was, was seen as a challenge to american life and american lifestyles yeah. and american ideals so yeah. in
3: other words what you're saying is they missed the point completely absolutely yeah.
2: <laughs> but what what is amazing is that at this point you were we're starting to see how how short stories can have this huge impact, and especially you know science fiction short stories, suddenly are having this huge impact, national impact on America. It's it's oh. quite amazing that that's that's actually occurred. But yeah, as I said, the story itself is it's probably not the greatest story I've ever read or anything. It's it's quite an entertaining story. It's an interesting story, and it presents an interesting uh, uh, an interesting society in a very subtle way. But it's just, yeah, the amazing impact that the story had at the time of its release is just astonishing. As we sort of move into the 1950s, another, I think, very major uh, turn of events begins. And that's the publication of collections of these short stories in book form. Some very noticeable books are published around this time. We see um, Foundation and, you know, keeping with Asimov, also iRobot. And your you know, iRobot was a series of short stories that were originally published in uh super stories and astounding science fiction um and one of my personal favorites as well martian chronicles um, by ray bradbury i just just briefly want to read out just to give you an idea of the the sort of widespread nature of these stories and where they're getting published martian chronicles um, had stories in it that were originally published in um planet stories uh thrilling wonder stories Imagination, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, uh, Weird Tales, Other Worlds, um, in Colliers, which is of course bringing us back to that sort of more upmarket uh, magazines, and strangely enough, in a um, something called McLean's or Mcleans, which is a Canadian news magazine. <laughs> cool. So you're seeing stories are starting to spread, but now they're being collected. And they're being collected into these volumes that are being published and they're becoming hugely influential on um, the writers after that. We had Lensman was getting published at the time. So the the golden age writers are now becoming, um, you know, are getting into bookstores. They're getting into libraries and, and, you know, science fiction is starting to spread because of these short stories. Uh, and I think that's an astonishing turn of events. And of course... You know, these books being published in the 1950s, and of course novels then starting to come in, novels like Dune and um, uh, Stars My Destination, which we've reviewed in the past, um, then is slowly starting to move towards influencing that next generation of writers that are coming along. But of course, speaking of Bester, who is another uh, hero here on NCP, especially of Luke, uh, brings us to Luke's first choice for story, which is... Fondly Fahrenheit.
3: Fondly Fahrenheit was published in um, 1954, um, and I've chosen it for two, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it's my second favourite short story. but really do enjoy it. And but the the other one is the idea of the experimentation that goes on. And this is something that um, has reflection not just in science fiction, but in writing in general. You've got around the, around this period, you've got the writings of um, William S, William S. Burroughs and uh, Jack Kerouac um, in Um, you know, mainstream, quotation marks, that's that's, um, going on and this sort of bleeds a little bit into what happens in the 60s um, in fiction in general and science fiction in particular. Finally, Fahrenheit Concentrates uh, is a story about a rich playboy who is fleeing his home planet because his android has committed murder um, and he's being hunted by the police and he finds himself going from planet to planet with his android trying to find an answer as to why the android is, in fact, committing these murders when, you know, effectively the three laws yes. are, are in play here. Um, and, he's going, and, and that is essentially what the, what the, um, the crux of the story is, uh, or the, certainly the plot. But what the story actually focuses on is the way in which um, our main character and his android, their psychosis and their psychologies, begin to intermix to the point where um, Bester physically writes in sentences... Characters from a third perspective, and then mid sentence will change it to a first person perspective, from that character's perspective to the android's perspective, mm. and so you get three different perspectives almost in one, and, y- and yet he still makes it quite clear as to who is speaking. What he what he what he really does with this is he is he, um he he swaps it. He doesn't make it clear if the roles have been swapped, particularly when the murders occur. Mm. Um, there's a murder, for instance, where he's killed two students, but because he switches from going from the third to the first person, he, um, it, it's not actually clear whether it's the android who's committed the murder or the main character. Mm. Um, and it's really unclear if the main character commits the murder specifically when he, um, the main character actually physically, pull, physically shoots someone later on in the story. Um, and it's that sort of experimentation plus also the willingness to have your main character do something really nasty mm. um, that sort of leads into what comes later on. Um, with the new wave, with the whole idea that you have to break these down. Bester was, for the most part, reacting against what John W. Campbell was doing towards the end of his run on Astounding, which was going into the A.E. Van Void, um the L. Ron Hubbard, Dianetic, Sonic Superman. And I've said that this previously on previous podcasts. Mm. And this is Alfred Bester's attempt to sort of get away from that. He published mainly... He published a couple of stories in Astounding, but he published mainly in Galaxy. And a lot of his stories, his novels and his short stories, are seen as... Uh, prototypes for the new wave that comes in the 60s and the sort of the he sort of bridges that gap between the clean cut future versus the um, almost dystopic sense of self that comes um, with Harlan Ellison and Michael Moorcock.
0: Oh, this is um, a story that I really enjoyed reading too. Fell in love because I hated stars. So, <laughs> <Shame on you. laughs> but no, I, I really enjoyed this, mainly for the, the reasons uh, Luke was talking about, not so much for what the story was about, but just for the way it was written and mm-hmm. the, uh, the psychology behind it really drew me in.
3: So what we have here with Finally Fahrenheit is um, the bridge to what happens in the 60s, and in the 60s um, with the emergence of uh, the flower power movement, with the, um, the rise of psychedelic drugs, um, and where the Cold War really sets really sets its tone with the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, the Bay of Pigs. And that sort of is another reason why I think Bester does what he does. The worldview in the 50s is they're all out to get us. Um, it's, uh, it's not clean-cut in the world itself anymore, and that's even more apparent in the 60s. Um, and the two leading lights of the 60s science fiction New Wave movement are Michael Moorcock, who is the editor of New World magazine, and Harlan Ellison, who are both are both obviously writers, but both also very famous for... Um, The ship, as I said, Moorcock with with the magazine and um, Hal Nelson with uh, an anthology he published called Dangerous Visions specifically set out to put a book full of short stories that were going to shock people. It -hmm. said, here's what we're doing and we're going to break all the rules, we're going to have explicit sex, we're going to have explicit drug use, we're going to have explicit violence and we're not going to have characters who might fit the stereotype of what your main character should be. Not not necessarily clean cut good looking heroic types. These are going to be Severely flawed characters who you know you won't immediately like, but hopefully you will begin to understand and certainly understand the actions that they take and the world that they live in. Works that come to mind, spring to mind, are uh, stuff like um, *A Clockwork Orange* by Anthony Burgess, which does exactly that. You don't care about Alex Dru, but you do kind of understand where he's coming from mm-hmm. towards the end. Um, and the story that I've chosen in that regard is arguably one of the most famous science fiction short stories, which is Harlan Ellison's. I have no mouth and I must scream. The story of I have no mouth and I must scream concentrates on five individuals stuck in a computer program. A.M. The, com- the the computer has taken over the planet. There's been World War III. Every single nation has turned has created has got this artificial intelligence. They've turned it on in order to help them run the war games and fight the war. But the computer has done what everyone didn't predict: linked all the me- all the networks together and create one single. Um, artificial intelligence. The intelligence has wiped out every single person on the planet barring five people and it's keeping those people alive. They, they've been run for about 70 years I believe um, and it won't let them die in an attempt to exact its revenge on what it believes as, as its creators. It's created you know, cold intelligent life that's incapable of strong emotional reaction and it sees that as Sees that as the be all and end all, and it's going to take its revenge on the five people who believes it's, it's responsible for. Ted, the narrator, tells us that um, the five who were there have been genetically mutilated to um to various extents. Um, one character who is uh, who before being dropped in the computer simulation is you know handsome, bright, and gay, and Harlan specifically tells us that he was gay. Um, but then the computer is mutilated to the extent where he looks like a gorilla and that he's um, genetically modified his genitalia to the extent where um, he now has sexual relations with a woman. So he's programmed him completely contrary, in a form of punishment, to what you know he himself actually was. And he's done that with all the other characters. The problem is they have to actually live with that. And they have to face whatever challenges the computer throws at them without spoiling the story. Ted comes up with what he perceives to be the only way out, and in that, the am receives its final his final pun- gives its final punishment, um, and takes away the mouth, and that's where you get the title for the story from. On the face of it, it sounds like a pretty you know average everyday one of the story, but um, it goes through in the mutilations of all the characters um, exactly how they've been manipulated. So Ellen, who is supposed to be chased and innocent in real life. Has suddenly become, has suddenly turned into a um, a vamp and a bit of a vixen, where she services and is abused by all by the other male um, members of the company. Ted himself is a bit of a paranoid and an outsider, and things like that. This is one of those stories that sort of set the tone. It's tame by today's by today's standards, but for its time, it was quite um, explosive. It's one of like it's even a story that if you haven't read science fiction, you probably would have heard of this one.
0: One of the elements of this story is that, that the computer taking over, and there was a sort of a prevailing thing that with during with science fiction writers at the time. That a lot of them wrote stories about technology taking over mm. uh robots taking over uh people losing their jobs because the computers have taken over mm. i find that interesting coming from them with this it seemed to be on the one hand they're proponents of the future on the other hand they're afraid that the technology is going to come and take away people's jobs and take over their lives
3: but at, at, in the world at that point they absolutely thought that take the technology which was the bomb yeah. was going to take away everything exactly yeah, yeah. So, they thought yeah. the
0: bomb was going to uh destroy the world mm-hmm.
1: i really i really really love your two choices basically both of your stories are from what i think is one of the greatest periods of short mm-hmm. stories that we have yeah um it's i mean finally finally Far- paranoid is, is brilliant mm-hmm. um, i'm one of my best of fans. But, um, I, I was when I was trying to uh, pick my two stories. I, I was very upset with myself that I didn't include a Harlan Ellison story because mm. I think he's just he's one of the greatest writers that humanity's mm. ever produced, and he'll agree with that, statement. So, um, <laughs> no, 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 no. He'll he will modestly agree with that, statement yeah. and then say, "No, I'm the absolute awesomest writer," you know, he stuff is, like that. He, I mean, the, the problem with Harlan is that he is brilliant. And th- but he knows that he's brave. And so <laughs> that's, you know, I mean, there's, there's no modesty there. Mm. But, I mean, it's, I, I mean I'm, I'm really, really glad that somebody included an Al- uh, a Harlan story oh, yeah. because I didn't. It's and it
3: just, I thought it was a travesty. You kind of yeah. have, to, if we're talking about short stories that predict science fiction, you have to talk about this one because, as I said, it's yep. the most famous. Yeah, well, that's that's what I'm saying. I'm glad you picked mm. this one. I mean, I, I, my what? actual,
1: my favourite Allison story is actually Mephisto in Onyx. Mm. Um, but, but like you said, this is, this is the, the science fiction short story that... Mm non-science fiction readers have heard of mm. yeah so that's, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Richard collections yeah. um, because that's basically what uh, that's basically how short stories are sort of are seen sort of seen nowadays um, right. in print form so in print form you have the mammoth book of science fiction and the mammoth book of horror which are now in their what are they like their 20th editions or mm. now or something like that's that right. so, so they've been gone for like 20 years or something like that and they're, they're probably the most famous sort of collections and that's in print that's really how, you, how the only way you're going to really see it but with uh, the advent of technology, now you get uh, e-books. E-books, is very, is, short stories are very popular in the ebook sort of format. So one of the cool things I've noticed is that uh, established authors will write the short story, like how I said before, about how Stephen King sort of writes, sort of, sort of gets them out. Um, and they'll, they'll then publish them for free sometimes, right. sort of on their website or something like that. And I was, that's, that's a really cool trend that's happening in the world. I, I, I'm a big fan of it. So one what, what uh, of my favourite examples of... Of this is uh, established author is uh, is the brilliant Neil Gaiman who uh, does a whole a whole collection of short stories and has them um, collected in print form as well. But he has uh, he actually has one that's available for free on, he, on his website neilgaiman.com um, called A Study in Emerald, um, and it's one of my, one of my picks for short stories uh, mainly because it basically combines two of my loves, uh, and I'm sure Luke will agree here. Where it's, it's sort of a it's a uh, Arthur Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes story mm. combined with the Cthulhu mythos, yeah, uh, which how can you go wrong? <laughs> really, you'd have to be pretty crap to stuff that up. Um, and it, I just think it's it's brilliant. It's got it's it's it basically kind of ticks all the boxes for what a short story should be. It's you know it's not too long, it's entertaining, it has the twist ending, mm. it's, and it's it goes really back into my 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 Wild Newton sort of uh, situation where. Um, where, it's the, where it's the world that we know, but not quite as we know it, so slightly diverged, so it's a bit of an Anna Dracula sort of situation.
0: Like, I like the way it's presented in PDF format, because he, he presents it as if it's a page from the Strand newspaper, and it's got these cool little <laughs> in-joke ads. ads in there as well. Yeah. Constipation cool. of the soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: it is, it's just like the, sort of that Anna Dracula sort of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen thing, yeah, it's got the the fake ads in it, like you said on the, on the PDF form that's yeah. available, because I mean, because I've got it in um, in book form and, and also the PDF. I downloaded the PDF in order to read it on my iPad in preparation for this segment and saw those ads for the first time, mm. and they're just awesome. I mean, the, the <laughs> Vlad Tep's, Tepes um, blood transfusion, you know, the medical thing. It, 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 it's just you know, the Doctor pre- Jekylls. Jekyll's, you know, Victor's Vita,
3: yeah, great, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Bre- Bre- <laughs> stuff. So, yeah, it's awesome stuff. Um, anyway, so "A Study in Emerald" uh, is basically deals with um, uh, a consulting detective and his assistant, um, who are not named, who investigate the murder of a German prince. And right off the bat, it's a bit weird because the German prince has they know, I mean, the detective knows that he's a German prince because he has multiple limbs and green blood. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, it's basically is, an it's it's a retelling of the study, uh, a study in Scarlet, um, Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes story. So the word "race" is uh, written on the wall and means the same thing. And so it follows the same sort of basic uh, basic plot. Um, I don't want to give. I actually don't want to. Unlike the other stories that we went through, I don't want to give the ending away because one that never actually specifically says what's happening at the end. So. Um, it's it, it's you can make up your own sort of mind, but I mean the most obvious uh, solution is there for you to have a look at. Um, it's a must read. So uh, I don't like I said I don't want to give anything away. Read it. It's brilliant. I mean I, I will I will say this actually. I mean when you meet you meet Queen Victoria, and uh, she's one of the one of the older gods, and uh, <laughs> and uh, it's just you know I just I can't describe just how awesome the story is. So it's basically if. Uh, It's it's the sort of story that uh, my my hero Poe would approve of. It has the Poe stamp of approval.
2: (laughs) I'd be interested to know what the Poe stamp of (laughs) approval looks like. I'm picturing something
3: quite macabre. It's it's,
0: it's a squash A giant giant pendulum. A giant pendulum swings down and
3: stamps something the The Poe stamp of approval. (laughs) Nevermore. Nice.
0: And there's no excuses either to read it. Just go to com. Yep. Have it's
1: available for free, check it out, and you get the cool edition with the the ads that Crystal mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah, very, very cool. Uh, and another author who also provides um, uh, free fiction on uh, Free Fiction Monday...
0: Uh, well, it actually is Tuesday in Australia. <laughs>
1: oh, well, there you go. ...is a uh, fan of the show, <laughs> Miss uh, Christine Catherine Rush.
0: That's where I come across my next uh, story, uh, Christine Catherine Rush's website, where she has her Free Fiction Monday, amongst other things she has on their website... The story is called What Fluffy Knew. Basically, I chose this story because it's just a lot of fun. I'm not a big fan of animal stories, usually, but this this one was a lot of fun. Also, uh, the picture of the cat looked a lot like my cat, whose <laughs> 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 name is Isaac. <laughs> but this cat's a girl, and, and her name's Fluffy, and she's the, the princess of the house, and she knows she's the princess of the house and acts accordingly. There's other cats that live in the house as well, but the crux of the story is that there's tiny little aliens come to invade Earth, and they get lodged into the other cat's ears, and only Fluffy knows what's going on, and it's up to Fluffy to save us all from these tiny little aliens. The the poor two cats that, that, that aliens infect, for lack of a better word, um, don't react terribly well when uh, one of the cats ends rather terribly. But it, it's, just a, it's just a fun little story with a, a lovely little ending, and, and uh, just I can just imagine a cat would actually react that way. Maybe not mine, because he's stupid, but <laughs> so, so, some cats would actually react that way.
3: <laughs> Reading the story, all I could really think of is that reference in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy about the alien to invade Earth, but thanks to a miscalculation of scale end up shrinking themselves and get, getting eaten by a small dog.
0: But yes, yes, that, I thought of that as
2: well. <laughs> that, that was my first thought, but what yeah. um, I found really interesting about this is it's actually a very classic, old-school, you know, invasion of the body snatches type story, yeah. you know, where the aliens come down and they effectively, you know, they take possession of the thing. but it's done by cats. Yeah. <laughs> and I just think that's such a cute little twist <laughs> on the story.
1: Yeah, I wasn't expecting to like this story at all, actually, because I am not—I'm pretty famous for not being a, an animal lover. And uh, uh, when I first when I saw the front cover and saw the cat, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is going to be terrible." And uh, <laughs> that's, that's also funn- part of the reason I chose. Funnily it. enough, it actually was one of my favorites. Um, not because it's—I mean, it's not a brilliant story by any stretch, but it's just like you said, it's just a lot of fun. Mm. I mean, just the description of Fluffy herself and sort of her world. I, th- I thought it was amazing. I was like, "This is this is how a cat would think." I, I mean, I, how I sort of picture how a cat would think, and so this was just a lot of fun to read. And I actually had a smile on my face as I read it. So, um, so that uh, brings us to the end of our uh, dust jacket on short stories. Now, we of course have not covered every <laughs> everything there is about short stories. Not even um, <laughs> I, I highly recommend that you do so, um, do some research for yourself. Uh, read all the ones that we suggested because we suggested them, so therefore they're good. Um, and uh, we're, we're, for the lorry. we're good like that. Yeah, and <laughs> except just... the lorry, which we all
3: the like, is oh, actually, good, yeah, like...
1: except for the lorry, which really isn't that good. But and we'd actually really, I'd really love to hear from you guys about your favourite short stories. Let us know. I mean, if you've uh, let's, if you've got some favourites, or even just some ones that you just thought were pretty
0: cool, something you can't um, believe that we possibly left yeah, out. Yeah, it's like
1: it's like how dare we not mention so and so. Then uh, please let us know, and then we'll actually cover it in a future episode. We'll do a follow-up episode to this dust jacket at some point. Um, I'll sort of I'll collect our responses, and we'll read your suggestions, and uh, go from there. And uh, no doubt, you know there'll be suggestions out there that we that we a didn't cover and b have never read before. I was like even a couple here that I never read before, and I'm glad I did. So yeah, so there's no time limit. Just send in your, uh, send in your responses, um, send in your thoughts about the, the segment and uh, anything that you want us to cover, and we will cover it. Audience choice. Short stories as picked by our lovely audience.
0: I was going to say reader's choice, but uh, it didn't really make sense. Listener's choice. <laughs> Listener's choice.
1: <laughs> so continuing our short story theme, we're going to follow up with a Channel Zero on The Twilight Zone, which, let's face it, is basically just television episodes of short stories.
0: So we're currently on the outskirts of the Tomb the Raider. <laughs> There's a signpost up ahead. <laughs>
1: Episode seems to be all about uh, my hero worship. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is your show. uh, Yeah, it's my podcast, goddammit. That's right. Um, Because The Twilight Zone uh, is an anthology television series created by the late great Rod Serling, um, who Luke does an uncanny impression of. Um, Can you do that again for me later in private?
2: (laughs) You know, this is going into (laughs) uncomfortable territory.
3: You know, Dave, we're entering a really, really weird. Period there It <laughs> was awful yeah, it's no, it's <laughs> Not as good as earlier <laughs> no I'll, I'll whack um, him on the
0: head so he can only see him black and white <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, Which ran for five seasons uh, From 1959 to 1964 uh, There's 150 uh, That's for the original series um, There was 156 uh, episodes And they're basically a mixture of um, Drama, psychological thriller Fantasy, science fiction, suspense And even horror uh, in some of them Basically, all of them had some sort of disturbing event uh, and uh, usually ended in some sort of bizarre, unexpected twist, which was a result of being within the dimension of the Twilight Zone. Um, there's, the Twilight Zone is not a, a, a physical place, although there is a map of it available online somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's got to be there There's all these little points that in his in, in introductions uh,
2: he just yeah. mentions, like highways, he mentions,
0: yeah. you know, But he always, he, always, he always
1: seems to mention that it's on the outskirts yes. of the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I actually wonder what's at
0: the centre, but I'm beginning to think maybe it's him. Maybe you don't really want to know. <laughs> no,
1: I don't want to know. It's better if you don't know. So, Rod Serling served as executive producer and head writer. He actually wrote. Uh, 92 of the 156 episodes That's a fair um, Which is a magnificent effort And I'm glad he did Because he's great. Every episode he does good um, And he was also the show's host um, He first started off doing uh, Off-camera narration But as from season 2 uh, He actually appeared on camera And um, he's awesome the cigarette so and everything
2: they, they actually The great thing is At first he just starts to Appear on camera Yeah But then they start to Actually incorporate it Perfectly into the surroundings. Into the the it? It's actually one of the highlights of watching the show. Yeah. We're seeing where he'll appear at the start.
1: So the the intros, so the opening theme, and, and then uh, Rod Sterling's appearances are basically uh, uh, the hallmarks of the show. Really, say <laughs> <It's just, laughs> uh, So we so have the uh, the opening intro monologue, which I'll go through later. Each season actually has a slightly different monologue, and I'll, I'm going to read out every single one of them. Um, and <laughs> uh, and then he sort of you know it's we'll, we'll, the episode will start, and then. It'll pan across the rod. Who <laughs> will give, give his, thing, and he's not always, he's not always nice. It'll be sometimes he's actually kind of, he kind of looks, he looks kind of bored. Mm. Sometimes he's, he's sort of, he's got this sort of maniacal
2: often,
1: glint in his eye. He often, depending on the on the yeah, story.
2: Yeah, he, he he the way he looks is yeah. reflective of what you're about to see. And the ever-present <laughs> cigarette.
1: <laughs> and at first, he was actually kind of nervous about his appearances because he was not. I mean, he's not an actor; he's a writer. Mm. Um, but you can tell he's uh, at least at the start. Um, he's enjoyed it <laughs> You can you, can, you can tell he's really into it The success of the series eventually then later on uh, Led to uh, a feature film, a radio series, comic book magazines A whole bunch of spin-offs, including a pinball machine um, And uh, some remakes uh, in the 80s and uh, in the 2000s But we'll get to those later So as a boy, Rod Sterling was a fan of Pulp Fiction stories As we all as we he, all are uh, You can't tell Um <laughs> And uh, as an adult writer, he uh, sought, uh, sought to, to write stories with themes of uh, racism and government control, and war and society in general. But and basically, sort of human nature. But he got uh, quite frustrated with uh, the restrictions that were imposed on him by the networks. Um, so basically, he decided he so he he come to the conclusion that science fiction. Um, Because he he didn't start off as as a science fiction writer He started off as 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 just a a fiction writer And I say say just a fiction writer Because it's not as good as science fiction (laughs) Um, uh, For like craft television theatre And uh, Playhouse 90 and stuff like that Um, So he decided that science fiction was the way to go Because he could basically trick the dumb TV executives (laughs) (laughs) And have these sort of themes with them not realising and it was a success, I mean, basically, they had no clue i mean you had you had things like racism uh, and uh, you know, governments and the shady things that they do and and just you know, the futility and stupidity of war um, and things like that all you know covered up in this science fiction wrapping because it involved aliens, people had no idea they just enjoyed it, Is it like
0: Star Trek followed the same. Yeah, and Star yeah, Trek no. did the same sort
1: of thing, I mean, yeah. the, the, the famous racism, the Star Trek black and racism and with the black and white people yeah. half on each side, which, you know, to us is obvious, it's like, well, come on, but back then, for some reason, they seemed either, either they didn't know, or actually, it's my my theory is that they did know, but they thought, hey, now we can get away with it, Yeah, and uh, it won't, we, won't, we won't get in trouble, and so we're cool with it. That's how I sort of picture it, mm. because I just can't think that these this board of you know ten people at the table looking at this uh, at this episode script going, we have no idea that this is about racism. Of course they do. <laughs> <because> <laughs> I mean, oh. now, now they're just thinking, ah, oh, well, we're good. I don't know. Ah, uh, well, so. look, I, I prefer to think of the more positive side. So yeah, so he had the idea for uh, um, to, to use science fiction, and he he, uh, he had a story called the Time Element. Uh, so CBS purchased uh, a tally play in 1958 um, that Rod Serling hoped would be the pilot for a new series. Uh, it was called The Time Element, and although a critical success, um, it wasn't a audience success. So it wasn't sort of it wasn't success in sort of with the it wasn't successful enough as according to the sponsors in order to start a show. And it wasn't until a year later that uh, he did eventually then get offered uh, the chance to do what would then become the twilight zone um and i won't go into too much detail with the time element but the time element is actually available as a special feature on uh the twilight zone season one blu-ray which is brilliant uh i'll, I'll, I'll talk about them again uh like, oh, actually now talk about them now why not the, <laughs> the twilight zone blu-rays must buys and they have all the, the episodes remastered both remastered and non-remastered uh, editions um they have uh, the episodes some of the episodes were then recreated as radio plays in the two thousands, starring, you know, the stars of today. Um, it's got them on there, uh it's it's commentaries, music tracks. It, anyway, this is not is turning into an ad for the Blu-rays, but trust me, by the way, we might be disappointed. <laughs> do, yourself um, do,
0: yourself, <laughs> do yourself
1: a favor. Do you do yourself a favour. Uh so yeah, so the Twilight Zone uh, started off with we Where is Everybody, uh which was the pilot episode. And uh like I said, was a huge success. It premiered October second, nineteen fifty nine. The reviews were unanimous, essentially. Um, it was just, was just huge. Um, and but more importantly, it had uh, some famous people of the time who were fans, and so, so it took off. Uh, season one uh, was nineteen fifty nine to nineteen sixty. Uh, the intro, like I said, uh, each season had its own intro, uh, it was slightly different working. So the intro for season one is, and I hope I can do this justice, do this justice. There is a fifth dimension, beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space, and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Oh, I was a chill down my spine.
2: <laughs> that was a It's got me going. <laughs> <laughs>
1: with the exception of one episode the chaser the first season featured only scripts written by Rod Serling, Charles Beaumont and Richard Matheson who are basically the trinity of writers for this show and you can't ask for for more than that no. Brent. um my
2: three heroes yeah
3: just uh, just brain brain stuff Richard Matheson one of the unsung heroes of american literature
1: yeah absolutely and we didn't mention him in the short story segment mm-hmm. see Audience, that's, I want you to slap our bums <laughs> with those. I want to see an, e- an email saying, "Why didn't you mention Richard Matheson?" <laughs> so many of the first season's episodes, are some of the most popular, so most some of the most well-known ones and uh, celebrated ones, including uh, "Time Enough at Last," "The Monsters of Jew on Maple Street," "Walking Distance," and "After Hours." And of course, was you know won awards, awards, awards. Uh, one of the most uh, iconic things about the show is its opening theme music by Bernard Herman. I don't know if I can't even describe it. It's just everybody it's knows the
0: music, whether they've seen the show yeah. or not.
1: Unfortunately, it's uh, it was then uh, changed. Uh, there was a variation of it for later seasons, and that will be the uh, the version that you would have heard before the start of the segment. Um,
0: it's a, it's a meme. People do it when they're talking about spooky things. They do the Twilight Zone music, yeah. even if they've never seen the show.
1: That is exactly right. So <laughs> the, the famous you know, do-do-do-do-do-do-do is, is now part of pop culture. Mm. Mm. Um, so then we get to season two, which was 1960 to 1961. Um, the intro for season two is, You're travelling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. I don't do it anywhere near as good as he does, but that's. that's <laughs>
2: but great. that's that that's sort of probably the more famous of the two yeah. openings. That's where you're really starting to solidify what yeah. the, the classic opening that everybody knows is.
1: The sex the second season premiere is actually a weird one. It's a, it's actually it's kind of a retelling of. Um, The first season's premiere uh, Where is everybody? So the the second season starts off With Kin 9 will not return And basically The reason that he redid it Is because After that episode is done um, uh, Was released uh, There was a story A new story About a World War 2 bomber That was found In the Libyan desert um, Which is then again Later touched on In uh, Close Encounters By Steven Spielberg Um, So uh, So he sort of so King, uh, King 9 is kind of sort of a pseudo-sequel to Where Is Everybody, which I found is, is just fascinating. It's an awesome, awesome idea. Um, unfortunately, the episode itself is not that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> not the, it's, I mean, it's all right, but the, the idea behind it is.
0: The idea is much more fascinating than the actual episode. <laughs> now,
1: a new network executive, James Aubrey, took over uh, CBS, and uh, he proved to be quite difficult... Um, for the Twilight Zone, so it was uh, the start of the troubles because he wasn't—he basically just wasn't a fan, and uh, he uh, didn't really like the cost of the show, and so—and um, so, and he also—he's also, he's also uh, one of the reasons why the, uh, it went from film to videotape, um, which is a shame because uh, even on the brilliant Blu-rays, you can only clean them up so much.
2: Yeah, fortunately the quality of the writing—it's main, still maintained at a high level, and that's exactly it Sort right. of offsets the. All sort of lesser production values at that time.
1: The second season also uh, so includes also some uh, more classics, uh, including uh, the Eye of the Beholder and the Invaders, uh, just to mention just two. Then we have season three, 1961, 1962. So the intro for season three is basically the same as season two, but removes the signpost up ahead. Uh, and, the, and the next stop Which is a shame Because that I is love gold the, I love the side post <laughs> up ahead.
2: I don't know why They took it out <laughs> So by the
1: way I the not bother reading that It's basically the same So by this point um, uh beginning To get quite exhausted I mean he's, he's, uh, He just feels Really drained He contributed You know 73% of the show um, Up until this point um, So it's It's really starting To ca- catch on to him But Despite that Despite the fact That he claims That he's, he's just Run out of ideas Season 3 has some brilliance in the forms of uh, It's a Good Life um, to Serve Man and Five Characters in Search of an Exit. Uh, season 3 also uh, boasts of the fact uh, a Ray Bradbury episode with Ice in the Body Electric and, you know, more Emmys and so. Actually, Tyler Zone received two Emmy nominations um, uh, but didn't win either, uh, but did receive a Hugo, Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation, uh, making it the only three time recipient until Doctor Who that in 2008 Season 4 gets a new intro You unlock this door with the key of imagination Beyond it is another dimension A dimension of sound, a dimension of sight A dimension of mind You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance Of things and ideas You've just crossed over Into the twilight zone Season 4 is actually, uh, unfortunately, the the period where they change it from half-hour episodes into hour episodes Um, It doesn't really work I'll be honest with you, as much as as, as brilliant as I find this show to be, it, it just doesn't really fit the, the hour-long format. They had some stories stretched for an hour, and it just did not work that way. And because Serling's uh, working on other stuff, he's just he's got limited input. Um, uh, Beaumont uh, has a, gets a brain disease, and so he's, uh, his input's diminished. And, you know, fair enough. Uh, Herbert Hirschman was hired to replace uh, the long-time producer Buck Horton. Um, Hirschman's first decision was to create a new opening sequence, which is probably one of the most famous um, opening sequences of a TV show, with the the eye and the window and the door, and you know, the you, you are now entering the scary door, <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, sort of stuff. So it probably it's, most, it's the
2: entry that has become part of popular. Yeah, culture Yeah, when
1: most people think of of the opening sequence of the Tyler Zone, they think of that sequence, and that leads us into season five, 1963 to 1964. Uh, Beaumont's now out of the picture completely. Um, Serling uh, just is just completely exhausted by this point, and uh, a lot of other writers were brought in. You know, so are, where this also marks the appearance of uh, William Frug, who made what would prove to be some unpopular decisions. <laughs> uh, he shelved quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of scripts, including uh, Matheson's *The Doll*, which would then later be produced on uh, *Amazing Stories* and you know win awards <laughs> so yeah it's a shame uh, it is a cool story too um and you also uh got people to rewrite other people's stories without their permission i can't remember the writer but the episode was tick of time and uh it just got completely rewritten yeah and uh the, the author the original writer of that story it was like well then that's no longer my story so take yeah. my name off it it's <laughs> which is you know mm-hmm. fair enough but Strangely enough, you also get some uh, some classic episodes yet again. Um, Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet, which is probably one of the most famous ones, and is uh, was is re- remade in the Twilight Zone movie. Um, uh, a kind of a stopwatch, uh, which is which is brilliant. Uh, Living Doll, and <laughs> uh, and occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, um, which was originally a French uh, short film, which was which was modified, uh, which actually the original short film version of it won the Academy Award yeah. so it's you know pretty amazing stuff um, but, but that's that was basically the end season 5 was the final the season um, and it was cancelled uh, which is a damn shame and Sterling at this point was like wow I'm done <laughs> with uh, science
3: fiction and fantasy I'm going back to uh, but I'm going back to other stuff <laughs> but wasn't finished with science fiction fantasy because he wrote the screenplay for Planet of the Apes. That's well, right. that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a couple of
2: years after the cancellation of Twilight Zone, it's... he wrote the script for one of the most famous science fiction films of all. I time. know. So he's, uh, obviously uh, he needed the money, <laughs> but, uh, but
1: but well, you know, I and mean, he, he writes you know Planet of the Apes, which yeah. is great.
2: And it's it's amazing actually if you look, watch the Twilight Zone and then you watch planet of the apes you can see it you can actually see it the 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 philosophical questions the social questions twist all, all the, the things that certainly yeah. wanted to do when he started twilight zone mm. plus of course you know the absolutely brilliant twist ending yeah the, the the futility of war everything that he wanted to do with twilight zone is all there then becomes manifest in this in this brilliant movie
1: yeah it's so basically the twilight zone is distilled down the exactly space. right so it's, it's, it's pretty stuff. Actually, I consider it like the, the stepchild of the Twilight Zone. Absolutely. Um, so that didn't end there. I mean, Sterling went on to, uh, do Night Gallery, um, which, uh, only lasted one season, I do believe. Yeah. Um, which is a shame because you know, it wasn't as good, but it was, you know, it was good. But then CBS decided that it would be cheaper to, um, instead of, uh, starting a new anthology series would be actually to resurrect the Twilight Zone. But that had sold off most of his shares of the Twilight Zone So CBS could do whatever they wanted um, And so they did, they recreated the Twilight Zone in 1985 And it's alright mm. <laughs> I mean, I it's
2: see, okay it's... I, th- I think there is some, really, there is actually some amazing episodes yeah. Of the 80s Twilight Zone Some really good directors involved um, Guys like Wes Craven yep. um, You know, Some good horror directors, good sci-fi directors um, They remade a lot of um, original episodes early on hmm. um, early on especially um,
1: until they sort you know, of found their feet
2: yeah sort of yeah. I mean I, I remember um, uh, uh, Shatterday being the first episode yeah. with uh, Bruce Willis which is a remake um, and then the stopwatch yeah. um, is the second episode in that part um, but there were some good original stories there's a great story called Nightcrawlers yeah. um, with the Vietnam veteran um, they um, adapted one of Stephen King's Short stories, grammar, yep. into quite a creepy uh, little story. So, <laughs> look, it, it certainly didn't equal the original series, but I actually thought it was a very, a, a very entertaining a um, successor.
0: Yeah. Did they use the same format? The uh, uh, introduction, the same way? No, the introduction
2: yeah, was, was a bit different. They didn't have the voiceover.
1: Yeah, and Serling's not involved. No, mm.
2: they did have. They did have a. They had a. They didn't have the voiceover during the opening credits. They did have a, a voiceover introduction to the stories. Um, but it wasn't quite the same because you didn't have Ron Serling appearing.
1: Well, it does include uh, two incredibly popular stories, uh, Her, Pilgrim, Her Pilgrim Soul yeah. and um, J. Michael Straczynski's Dreamy a Life, um, which was probably the most critically acclaimed episode. Yeah. And which is, you know, I, I dare anybody to watch it and not get a tear in their
2: eye.
3: Yeah,
2: it's both uh, excellent stories. Probably not my favourites. Yeah. But uh, yeah, still, it is good stuff. It's well worth watching if you're a Twilight Zone fan.
3: And a nice reminder that J. Michael Straczynski could write once upon a time. Yeah. <laughs> so that that revival came as a result
1: of Twilight Zone the movie. So even though the movie had uh, sort of a you know wasn't a big commercial success they wanted it to be, and it was con- enough. And a
3: controversial production as well. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: So, um, so I I've, mean, I've I've, so I'm kind of out of sequence, but just so to touch on the Twilight Zone, uh, Spielberg, uh, Landis, and Dante um, sort of decided to revi- you know to create a movie of their their favorite TV show, The Twilight Zone, um, and uh, they did it by recreating certain episodes and sort of in, um, in modern settings. Um, it doesn't quite work, I think it's it's a bit disjointed. I mean, some of it, I mean, just I mean the stories are essentially the same, and so therefore, if you like the original stories, you're going to like the remakes, and vice versa. Um, the uh, I, my favorite is the the 20,000 feet one because mm. yeah, I think Lithgow does an excellent excellent job
2: I actually think that's the one instance where I actually think the film version yeah. is actually a bit better than the original yeah. episode yeah. and pa- a big part of that is because John Lithgow is a much better actor than <laughs> William
1: Shatner is it does really <laughs> and, and he up. sells
2: it he sells yeah. it brilliantly
1: and uh, the film so, so the film you know with a, for better or worse he exists um, the, other, the 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 it, but it is marred uh, with the situation with uh, Vic, the death of Vic Morrow and um, two uh, two child two Vietnamese child actors um, during the production. Uh, a helicopter crashed on top of them and uh, you know took them out. So it's um, it it caused a legal dispute that endured up until like mm. fairly recently, yeah, like, was, twenty years later. It mm, was only... Um, Who was the director in that sequence? Landis. Landis uh, only recently cleared of that. Yeah, recently cleared, and um, not a Twilight Zone remake. But uh, in 1994, they had Rod Serling's Lost Classics, uh, which is which was uh, an idea by Richard Matheson and Carol Serling um, to bring some unfilmed Rod Serling stories uh, to the TV. Um, Serling, uh, Carol, uh, who was uh, Serling's widow. Um, found some uh, unfilmed shooting scripts and stuff like that, and so they banded together to get these things filmed. Um, it wasn't a success; um, it was uh, critically mauled, um, which is a shame. Um, it's they were they were okay. I mean, they weren't of the of of the Twilight Zone quality. Um, I mean, they were, I think I think Rod bin them for a reason in the air. <laughs> yeah, his best stories are the ones that made it onto the screen. <laughs> but, Definitely, um, <laughs> but it was cool to get them uh, yeah. get them redone. And of course there was then a second revival in uh two thousand two which was awful a void
2: <laughs> the, the that, only good thing about it was Forr Whitaker was the host. <laughs> that was the if that's
1: if, that, if that's what you can say is the only good yeah, thing about
2: yeah. it the, the stories were laughably bad yeah the production was laughably bad i mean it's it's like they just took all it, all the wrong elements yeah. that they could from Twilight Zone, they just didn't get it. That's the opening music was
1: redone by the guy from Corn. Yeah, and that <laughs> says it all. <laughs>
2: it's
1: just, so no, it was it was really 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 bad. The influence of the Twilight Zone cannot be under understated. It's uh, absolutely brilliant. Uh, it's it's influenced so many people uh, of our of our generation, including ourselves. It's spread into popular culture uh, in just about every aspect. It's been featured on The Simpsons. You know, you've made it when you're featured on The Simpsons yeah. numerous times. Um, it's, and uh, it's often quoted. I mean, like I mean, the, the creators of The Twilight Zone, the movie, they wanted to bring their favourite TV show to life, and, and that's what they did.
2: I also think it's, um, yeah, it, it's pivotal that The Twilight Zone came around just as the new wave was coming into science fiction literature mm. as well. And I think those two things combined... Created the massive wave of popularity that, uh, the, that science fiction achieved at that point, I think Twilight Zone actually brought helped bring science fiction into the mainstream as a TV series, yeah. and then yeah of course, influencing then you know, shows like outer limits and, and which sort of helped that progression along as well.
1: yeah um, so just to finish off, we'll talk about uh, so like I said it's, it's, it's influenced you know, just, ev- just, just about everybody. so there you have it the Twilight Zone it's brilliant:
2: best TV show ever. It's terrific <laughs> It's not the best TV show ever It is the best TV show no. ever There what, is not what, a single is TV show better than it Star Trek
1: Oh, okay, so you think so Star Trek the best TV show
2: Luke? Been, we've Crystal. been saying
1: it's the greatest TV show yeah.
3: I agree with Crystal
1: So it's a, a two-way tie, Star Trek versus Twilight no, well, I we'll, think have that's
2: to do, we'll have to do like a top five at some point That's, a, a, that is a, fair, that, that's
1: a fair comparison, I'm willing yeah. to go with that Star Trek, I'm happy with that Star Trek is my number, is, you know, my number 12 no, I'm no I'm <laughs> that's, I take yeah. that shirt away I mean, from you. It's not like
2: it's. It's not like you've said you know Beverly Hills 90210 is the greatest TV show of all time, or you know my number. My number two Jersey Shore or something like that. No,
1: my, my number two Manimal. All right. Manimal. So uh... <laughs> what now? They're remaking Manimal. I know, I know. What were they <laughs> thinking? <What? laughs> anyway, so that's it. The Twizers. Check it out. You won't be disappointed. Coming next. Coming soon. In cinemas November 15, we get the final instalment in the brilliant Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn Part 2. And we
3: celebrate because it's the last one and we don't have to put up with any more. No, we
1: celebrate because it's brilliance. And we'll cry because it's over.
2: You know they're already talking about rebooting it, potentially as a series of movies or as a TV series. We'll have to experience both. lies.
1: You Are you lying? I am not no, lying. It oh is already on the cards. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> Anyway, whatever. Uh, so yeah, so there you go. The end of the uh, the end of the Twilight Saga. Breaking Dawn. Bella's a vampire. What? They're after the baby. Baby grows up.
2: There's a baby now. Yeah, they have a baby. Like a vampire baby. Be careful! Yeah, well, you're half you're vampire, displaying interest. Half
1: half vampire, half human?
2: <laughs> so shouldn't two vampires have a vampire baby? <laughs> I don't know, dude. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
1: sorry. She's the first of her kind. How My question, vampires even have why babies. They're dead. Oh, so it's like underworld. But what's like... actually creepy? What's <laughs> creepy about it is that it's is that uh, she rapidly ages, right? So she becomes a, a young adult pretty quickly, and Jacob, who is the love the werewolf guy, the love interest of the triangle. So the bond. The, the, the oh right, okay, Bella, yeah, okay, yeah, I think um, I've seen him in ads. Um, imprints on her on the on the baby, so Bella and Edward's child becomes uh, Jacob's woman. I'm sorry. There's something slightly wrong about that one. I don't
3: know. Maybe it's not weird, but I find it weird. I disagree. What's creepy is that you're talking about it. (laughs) Anyway, moving on.
1: Um, And also that day, we also get... They really hate
0: it so much, Mm. Luke.
1: We also get Robot and Frank, which uh, is a story about an elderly, uh, a former criminal who's uh, got Alzheimer's and gets a robot companion. And... uh, He's then inspired <laughs> to mm. uh, to commit more crimes using the robot as he, as his accomplice.
2: I'm actually quite intrigued by this.
3: Story. <laughs> it sounds pretty. So it sounds I mean, pretty interesting. I'm I'm in it and he's awesome. Yeah, I'm intrigued right. by because it has a robot in it.
1: Yeah,
0: it's not a Disney movie, is it?
3: No, <laughs> no it's not. No,
1: no, it's meant to be one of those sort of.
2: It was well received scenes. at uh, the Melbourne International Film Festival.
1: Yeah, uh, as an in joke for Crystal and I, the robot looks like Asimo. <laughs> <laughs> so he made an appearance on QI, which is. Uh, Probably our third favourite TV show Uh, Then uh, the following week on November 22nd We get the return of Daniel Craig as James Bond In the film called Skyfall
2: Really looking forward to this one Yeah, Mm. I can't wait
1: Uh, So (laughs) yeah, we're going to be covering Skyfall Because let's face it, we're Bond nerds And uh, yeah, I I, I cannot tell you how excited I am Is he going to do another
0: Colin Firth coming out of the beach (laughs) scene? Probably I wasn't actually that excited mm-hmm. until I saw the
2: previews at the cinema the other day. Yeah. And now I'm pumped. Now yeah, I'm, like yeah. really excited having seen it the does, previews.
1: It does look awesome. Um and uh it also says a release of Electric Children, which we've mentioned previously, which is which is obviously being pushed back, so it's got a new release date. Uh, Electric Children was the story of the Mormon girl who believes that she's been impregnated by music. Mm. <laughs> you know, Immaculate Conception via
0: corn music Metallica well, music It's got a lot of dance Who knows?
2: They've, re- they've really doomed That to uh, failure here By re- releasing it On the same day As what well, was as well. The
0: music- who, was the, who was the musician
3: Barry White I don't <laughs> See that would make sense I love the sexist
2: glitter <laughs> of the lady snake.
1: So to finish up Don't forget You can contact us By email At feedback At com. Send in your short story Suggestions people We really really Want to hear about it. but, uh, It's going to be awesome I Can't wait to see the list uh, or post on our Facebook poll at www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast Or tweet us at, at nerdculturecast Or of course you can leave a comment on any post on our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com And most importantly, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes And subscribe to the podcast If you like it, subscribe it It's kind of like Beyonce's putting a ring on it What? A ring on the podcast.
3: Subscribe. I can't
0: believe he went You've
2: there. really uh, just <laughs> gone off on this
3: bizarre tangent, haven't you? <laughs> so and he... that, ladies and gentlemen, is why he shouldn't be in charge. <laughs> now
0: you know his true loves: Beyoncé and Twilight. <laughs> it
3: was the, the conjugal talking. <laughs> so that's it for me. That's
1: it for me from the crew. Richard, there's a side post up ahead. Luke,
3: you are now entering a strange world beyond sight and imagination. Crystal, Still limits.
0: I thought we just exited that world. No, we're on the outskirts. We're <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> Stuck in the middle with you.
1: Bye. Bye.